My name is Richard Morales, and I want to welcome you to The Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspectives of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Hello, everybody. I'm Ken Oliver. Welcome to another edition of The Prison Post. Today we have a very special guest as we explore uh, his latest book and a, a issue that's uh, sensitive to all of us, Untapped Talent, a business conversation about fair chance talent. Mr. Jeffrey Korzenik, Chief Investment Strategist at Fifth Third Bank. And of course, we're joined today by Crops Executive Director, Mr. Ted Gray. Ted, Jeffrey, how are you? Good. Thanks for having Hi. me. Great to be here. Good to be here. Good. I'm Jeffrey. Thank you. Good. Good, great. Uh, today we're going to talk about second chance or untapped talent. Uh, Mr. Korzenik has come out with a wonderful book that's really been a help to all of us in the advocacy space who talk every day about fair chance talent, talent, talent upskilling, uh, employer development, and of course policy considerations around untapped talent. Uh, Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about your background and how this topic became so important to you. It's so unusual to have somebody from the business community be interested in a, a topic like this. You know, there are really two answers to that. One is uh, around 2013, 2014, big topic around the economy uh, was the declining rates of labor force participation. A smaller and smaller part of our adult population was actually in the labor force, whether employed or, or looking for jobs. And that's a real detriment to growth. It really holds back growth. And so I started to do professionally a deep dive into this and came to understand that we had social problems that were interfering with the economy in ways we've never seen before. Long-term unemployment, the opioid epidemic, and the incarceration recidivism cycle. Uh, so that's answer number one. And uh, so it was purely professional, but answer number two, I think, is uh, that uh, I was prepped for this as a child. My, my dad, who, who died in uh, 2003, has been a big influence on my life. And he was first in family to go to college. He was a very successful uh, person starting from absolutely penniless roots, son of immigrants. And um, he, he never lost touch with his roots. He would go back and visit his old neighborhood under the guise of doing errands. I, I'd go with him when I was 10 or 12. And at one point he had a conversation with a friend of his and I was present and they had a nice chat. And as we were walking away, my dad said, you know, he was in prison. And I asked for what? And my dad said, for, for murder, a crime of passion. And then my dad said something that's just stuck with me forever. He said, he's done his time. And I think that that value stuck with me and made me much more open to the possibility that people who've been sidelined from the labor force are not this burden on society, but are actually a tremendous resource that we in the business community should be learning how to utilize and and uh, and and drive some of the reforms that will help that. That's amazing. Um, what, I, what I'd like to talk about, Jeffrey, a little bit before we take a deep dive into the book and the topic matter is to talk about you. Uh, one of the things that we talk about on a regular basis here at CROP is investing in people over punishment and systems. One of the things that we're interested in doing is storytelling uh, about the individuals that make up the, the fabric of this great society. So if you could, can you kind of paint a picture for what led to your trajectory into the banking field, how you got to where you are today um, from a professional standpoint, personal standpoint? Sure. Uh, well, my dad was a lawyer, and uh, to his dismay, none of my none of my siblings and I went into the law. And uh, you might be skipping a generation with with uh, the next generation. Uh, and I just 
got interested in business. Um, it was a time um, I, I graduated college in the 1980s. There was a lot of entrepreneurship and I just liked the role that uh, business and entrepreneurship could have in fostering societal wealth and uh, giving people opportunities. So I, uh, I joined, uh, ultimately joined a company called EF Hutton, which was a legendary firm in, in its time that some of your older listeners may remember and uh, joined on Wall Street. I, I have had a uh, more than 30 year career on uh, uh, in the investment management industry uh, with a lot of really well-known name brand firms. And it's given me the opportunity to live in uh, London and Boston area and Chicago uh, and uh, and New York. So it's I've just I've had this really wonderful, privileged uh, experience. That's that, that's amazing. EF EF Hutton they had one of the greatest commercial campaigns of all time. When when EF Hutton talks, people listen, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for remembering that. I don't feel quite so old now. No, and, and now it's when Jeffrey talks, people listen because you seem to have the ear of just about everybody in the country from the business side, from the advocacy side, and people are listening to you and, and the message that you're delivering. And, and, and as far as evangelism is concerned, so we really appreciate you and the message that you're sharing from an economic perspective. Um, Ted, did you have a, a question you'd like to ask Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I, I'm just curious about how do you go from being on the path to, uh, investment management, to taking the time to, uh, the burden of writing a book about, uh, untapped talent and fair chance employment. Well, you know, I didn't see it as a burden. It was a labor of love, obviously, though uh, I, I will admit to um, it was more work than than I expected and, and uh, ended up being, you know, every weekend and every evening for months and taking vacations away from the family to write and all sorts of things. But I, I uh, became convinced along my, my journey and path of advocacy for second chance hiring, fair chance hiring, that a book was needed. Uh, because what would happen was uh, Fifth Third Bank would have these wonderful panel discussions in, in, I think, eight or nine cities around the country talking about how this works. We'd bring in second chance employers and I would have CEOs of companies coming up to me afterwards and saying, I want to get started. And what happened was a 45 minute lecture and panel discussion didn't give them enough information. Um, I was running out of time. In 2019, I did 141 flight segments and I, I, I couldn't do more. And what I also found was well-meaning, well-intentioned business leaders who, who wanted to start this would go back to their places of business and meet a wall of resistance. There's a, there's a natural inertia to this. Um, pe people are, uh, this is controversial in many places of business. And they need the ammunition of having a book and particularly a book that's not just this theoretical model, but cites the examples and experience of other business leaders just like them. And so the whole idea was to have an impact. And I thought having this book was a necessary step. And, and uh, so, so I'm very excited about the prospect for, for actually making change. What, one of our biggest challenges uh, is, you know, on one hand, we have to prepare people coming out with skills to succeed in the, in the workplace. But something that's just as challenging is uh, changing the minds of employers. And, and we call that, that work uh, employer development. So I'm curious about how your book has been received by you know, uh, corporate America. So, so I always tell my friends like you in, the, in the, this um, development, uh, you know, workforce development 
with people uh, behind bars or justice impacted, you're taking care of the supply situation, right? You're producing yeah. people who are ready to work and be great contributing members of society. I, I, let me take care of the demand side, and and you know the book really, uh, <laughs> does some of that. You know, it, when you're an economist, you you think in terms of supply demands. Yeah. Um, I'm really encouraged. Um, it, it's coming at a time when we have a for some people a surprising shortage of labor. So there's interest in exploring this. Uh, there's new business initiatives like the Second Chance Business Coalition that, with absolute name brand uh, business leadership of some of the you know largest corporations in America, that are putting their their print on this and 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 getting behind this in very real ways, not just performative feel good, but actually committing to uh, pilot programs. So it, it's coming at a good time. And what I'm finding is not only is there interest in the business community, I'm already getting some feedback from people that it's working. I, I recently heard from a, uh, a woman entrepreneur in Wisconsin who had asked me, you know, can you get on a call with me? Can you make introductions to nonprofits? I said, could you please start with the book? I, I'm just trying to manage my time. You know, I, I hope I said it nicer right. than that. <laughs> she sent me a message saying, I found this nonprofit, which incidentally was a nonprofit I had been meaning to introduce to her. I just hadn't had the time and I'm about to make my first hire. Um, so that tells me the book is doing exactly what I hope it, it would do, leverage my knowledge and experience of, uh, of my research to give business owners the tools they need to find the nonprofit partners, to understand the sensitivity and the accommodations you may have to make to actually make this a very viable uh, uh, model for employment. That's awesome. We appreciate that, Jeffrey. Um, let's let's do the good part now. Let's dive straight into the book. Uh, I love the book. I've read the book. Uh, I'm on my second reading of the book. Uh, and I encourage everybody out there who's interested in second chance hiring, even if you're not, it's a great read and a great source of information. Um, let's talk about chapter two, which is the people we call criminal. I think that's a very interesting topic because in this country, um, we have a, a tendency to put people in boxes and we, we base a lot of those boxes on status and on labels. And, and sometimes those statuses and labels don't exactly fit or they're, they're, they're um, formed by misinformation. So tell me a little bit and tell the audience a little bit about who are we calling criminals in this country? And what does yeah, that mean? And by way of context, I realized as I was writing the book, I intended just to write about the models of employment that I saw work. And I realized that business owners needed broader context in order to make a decision to go to, to intentionally go after this, this talent pool. And one of it was to your point of there's a terrible stigma to having a criminal record, particularly a felony record, or to uh, whether you've even been incarcerated or not, is a terrible stigma. And uh, it's not what most people think. Uh, you know, Truly, there is a tendency to think the worst when you hear felony. Um, my friend, uh, Josh Ho, who's an analyst with uh, Safe and Just Michigan, refers to this as the Hannibal Lecter effect. You hear felony, you think you know <laughs> the worst kind of uh, person um, manageable. But when you start looking at the research, you realize that the, and the actual numbers, it's overwhelmingly young men who make bad choices. And um, I am not so old. I don't remember. I don't, uh, I haven't completely forgotten making bad choices myself. The difference is whether you come from a 
uh, family and neighborhood situation that is allowed you to pr protect, that protects you from the worst of your bad choices. And so many people who enter the justice system start out with minor trans uh, transgressions that, that just spiral into permanent Im impairment of their ability to be um, contributing members of society and to lead good lives. So I, I really wanted to focus on that chapter and help people understand, you know, people who are entering into, into incarceration typically are not evil people. Uh, I, I'm willing to, to believe that some might be, you know, there might be some, but mostly it's just mistakes of youth being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, uh, uh, and, and that um, this does not make someone a bad person today or an unhirable person today. And quite frankly, I, I'm not sure in most cases it would have made them a bad person when the crime was committed. And, you know, there is this thing of aging out of crime, but overwhelmingly, a lot of people who enter the justice system, as you know, are, are come from trauma uh, filled lives themselves. They're victims in, in many ways themselves. Um, that doesn't mean you don't have consequences of some kind for, for, for actions that, that hurt others. Um, but these are fellow human beings, and uh, by and large, these are mistakes and judgment errors and environmental, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time that people can truly grow out of and become, you know, just, you know, I found that um, I, I always tell people, people who've been incarcerated with felony convictions can not only be um, good citizens, they can be good employees, and my personal experiences, they can be very good friends as well. Yeah, we appreciate that. We we certainly here at CROP um, understand the stigma that attaches. Uh, it's like a scarlet letter. Yeah. And in, in the conversations that I have with people, I often ask, you know, what would it feel like for you if you had to lead every conversation with the worst thing that you've ever done and, and wear it around your neck, kind of like a cowbell. And, and when I put it in that perspective and people think about their own choices that they've made in their life, even if they're not criminal, Poor, poor choices that may not have been ethical at a certain time or some other type of choice that they regret making when they were young. It, it, a light usually comes on for them. Uh, so I encourage, you know, invite people all the time to think about things in that way. Um, because it, 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 sorry to interrupt no, you, but incidentally, this is why, also why they can be such great employees. Because if you think back on your own experience, if you're a person of character and you make a mistake and you fall short of who you think you should be or who you think you can be, you double down your efforts to prove you are a better person than that mistake. And that's kind of the secret sauce to why second chance hiring produces such great employees and contributors. Absolutely, that, that, that's a great point. I think for all of us, and, and, and I want Ted to address this too, for myself, you know, I do feel that sense of, of wanting to do extra. You know, I go down rabbit holes for hours and hours and hours at a time trying to make sure that I'm on point with the knowledge that I have, make sure that I'm doing a better job than what average may be. So that way I can kind of erase or mitigate what happened 25 years ago in my life, right? And, and so, so it accompanies me with almost everything I do. And I think it does make me work harder. Um, it makes me more dedicated to what I'm doing. Um, you know, Ted, do you, have you felt the same way before? Yeah, I mean, just to use a real, a real life example, we were we were in a meeting the other day, uh, and we were talking about uh, we had we had given our word that we were going to do something, and uh, you know, it we're being told that that might not be the best choice for us to to move forward with 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 a couple of these hires, and that we might want to wait and you know, 
from our perspective, we had given our word. And, and if we don't keep our word, uh, it, it, it's probably could, you know, people may think it's in my mind, at least that people may think, well, what did we expect from those guys because of where they come from and, and, and their past. So it's, you know, we, I think it's important for me uh, that we are operating with a high level of integrity and being hypersensitive about if, you know, being careful where we give our word, but making sure that when we do, we honor it um, because, you know, this is our second chance and, and we may not get a third one. Uh, so exactly. I, I, I do, I do feel that there's, there's a little bit of that in the back of my mind uh, just as we move forward in, in building, you know, this company. And, and, you know, this is an unfair burden for people with records, but I do think they end up, they know they end up representing the whole. So if you're, you know, if you're hired as a first, second chance hire for a company, you know how you do and how you perform is going to influence whether there are future hires from that company. And is that unfair? Yes, it is to put that burden on one person, but but they are aware of setting that example. And uh, again, it's part of why they can be such, you know, this population can be just such great hires. That, that's a conversation. Sorry, Ken. No, go ahead. That's a conversation. We're, we're in the middle of our first cohort of our Ready for Life program. It's a virtual pilot. And we're, we're we have 15 people we started with 15. We have 14 now that we're taking through uh, the six month training. And the goal at the end of it is to get them uh, plugged into a career. And so that's a conversation that we have had with them. And and you're right. It may not be fair, but it's reality. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate that. I, I want to talk and touch just a little bit on, on recidivism. I mean, you know, most of the studies show that poverty is the number one driver of incarceration. But I want to talk about some of the other things that affect recidivism. You write about them in your book in the people we call criminal. Can you touch base a little bit upon some of the things that affect recidivism and why this issue of um, work and livable wage employment is important. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's almost if, as if we intentionally stack the odds against people coming out of incarceration. I, I don't believe it's intentional. In, in fact, I, I refer very specifically to uh, something called Hansen's razor is saying that says, you know, never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity. And, and we, have a stupid, <laughs> we have a stupid criminal justice system that neither promotes uh, safety public safety nor nor rehabilitation which are what the justice system is supposed to do and uh you know but part of it is uh it, it starts with with employment of course uh employment may not be sufficient for rehabilitation but it is necessary it's very hard to rebuild your life if you don't if you don't have a job and you know there are all these barriers to employment some of them are the soft but very very real barriers like the stigma against people with records but some are hard barriers these collateral consequences which include licensing restrictions uh, even the burdens of uh, of parole community supervision that disrupt people's ability to to stay employed um, or uh, or of course uh, technical violations of parole that you know you have a bad parole officer who doesn't work with you and and uh, uh, you know you can find yourself reincarcerated very easily for something that that 
the public would recognize as nothing that should get in the way. So, so you have that, you have risk, uh, challenges of housing, big, big uh, challenges is uh, transportation, um, particularly if, you, if you're not in a major city with public transit. So all of these things are, are, are large barriers. And, you know, the answer is that you need um, to have a level of skill and opportunity uh, that will allow you to be you know, paid enough to overcome some of these these challenges, as well as a reform of the justice system that is more supportive of people's employment and, and rehabilitation. Absolutely. I appreciate that. You said something that's very important. You talked about some of the civil disabilities in California. We know that there's 48,000 different types of civil disabilities that attach to somebody that has a felony conviction. So when we talked earlier about the scarlet letter, it it really is a scarlet letter or death of a yeah. thousand cuts, right? That's right. Uh, depending yeah. on how you how you approach it. So that's, that's I appreciate you uh, giving us a little bit on recidivism. Uh, Ted, do you want to talk a little bit about what reentry is and how you as the ED and, and crop, the crop organization got into the business of reentry and ask Jeffrey about it? Yeah, sure. So I, I'll, I'll tell the, the, the truth. Um, it, it, when Jason and I were commuted by Governor Newsom. Uh, we got out of here. We were in the middle of COVID. Uh, not, you know, so there was our original intention was to go back into the prisons. Um, and we were looking for ways to add value, uh, you know, while waiting, you know, for for things to open back up where, to a time where we could go back in. And I re that's when I, we reconnected with Kim. We had been out a few weeks and he had been working as a policy director and, and really had a good understanding on uh, what was needed and wanted uh, for reentry. We had not previously really been thinking about reentry. And so, you know, I, there was a lot I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know, but when Ken started sharing about uh, some of the challenges that people were up against, uh, we thought we might have some ways to add value. And, and, and he was the real architect of you know the four what we call the four pillars and so you know we we think you said it a minute ago a job might not be sufficient for rehabilitation but it's necessary so, and what one of the things that we believe is uh, a critical component to uh, you know changing one's life and and getting on a different path is um, like a mindset reset uh, personal leadership development where you're you you take responsibility for every outcome in your life yes the system is is it is what it is yeah um and it may never change so now what and so we we are intentional about going to work with people on helping them identify where they're uh giving power away to the system and helping them discover all the agency that is available to them to make the most out of the opportunities that are out there. And then, of course, the, the rest of our work is about creating opportunities and, and, and you know, as you said earlier, developing the, the supply side of uh, fair chance talent. So that's that's what we're doing. Um, I, I, you know, we don't know what we don't know. From, what I'd like to know is from your perspective, uh, what is wanted and needed in reentry um, from your side, the demand side? So, so I, I'm really glad you talked about your work there because I think it's so important. I, I, the the way again, I, I kind of coming at this 
from many ways the outside. I, I think of it as changing hearts and minds. So changing minds is you know hard skill development and you know getting a GED or college um, behind some of the, the prison uh, uh, college programs and and uh, vocational training. But but you're absolutely right. It has to start with changing hearts and. Uh, uh, you know, whether you call it character development or, or whatever it is about um, teaching people to be masters of their own lives and that they can do this and uh, own their mistakes as well. Um, so, so what I have found in, in the studies I've seen is that nonprofits are better equipped to do a lot of that work than, than governments. Governments can do a lot of the hard skills training, but it seems to me that nonprofits seem to do a particularly good job of, of um, changing hearts and through leadership development, personal development programs, uh, addressing sometimes uh, you know, trauma, uh, that, that, that's really critical. So it, it does, one of the challenges in driving better outcomes is there's no silver bullet. You know, everyone is looking for a silver bullet and it's, it's too complex an issue because you're dealing with real human problems here. Um, but I do think that progress can be made. So first of all, the business community has got to advocate for better outcomes. And sometimes that means being willing to fund more programs, whether they're inside uh, prisons or uh, funding of, uh, of uh, workforce development groups that specialize uh, in, the, in this area. Um, these things are chronically underfunded, particularly uh, prisons. Uh, and uh, that's a, a choice taxpayers make. I understand why they make that choice. But this is why the business community has to have a voice here and see people who are just as involved as their future workforce and and what how would you like your future workforce treated and and given opportunities so i i think some of it starts with business community involvement and then there's certainly hard reforms to community supervision um for instance that and to uh, cash bail and, and things like that that can um, lessen some of the impact of, of justice involvement without compromising public safety. In fact, frankly, with with enhancing public uh, enhancing public safety. Absolutely, Jeffrey. On, on that note, I'd like to ask you another question. I mean, out here, a good friend of ours, Lauren Bell, and the and the Czech okay. organization, uh, they're kind of infamous here in the Bay Area for running these simulations, these reentry simulations. And I think that you had an opportunity to experience one at the University of Chicago. And I'd like for you just to talk about some of the challenges that you saw and what some of the outcomes were after you finished you know it, it, it was very interesting it was not intended to be a re-entry simulation but it turned into one and uh, <laughs> this was at the polsky center uh, at university of chicago it was something that was open to uh, all the graduate students of the various schools at you know this, this great university first of all what was interesting to me was uh, who attended a lot of people from the law school a lot of people from the social service school someone from the medical school not a single person from the business school. So hmm. right away, that's an issue in, in the work I, I care about. And uh, uh, that was several years ago. I think that's gotten better. But it was uh, facilitated by my friend, uh, uh, Will Gossin. And he, uh, at one point, he had a, a researcher from Georgetown there, who and I was there. And I was talking about the reentry. She was talking about some other uh, issues. But then it became kind of a, a interactive workforce, and this is where it became a de facto reentry simulation. Uh, Will uh, brought out a whiteboard. He he draws a timeline across the whiteboard. On the left hand side is you know uh, exiting the prison gates. On the right hand side is not getting a job, 
but being a viable applicant for a job. And they had little sticky notes on every table that said, okay, everyone write down one task that has to happen for the person who's exited the prison gates to be ready for employment. And then you put it on the timeline, that sticky note, you put on the timeline where you think it, it, it's going to occur. And what came about is you realize that people who are going to be a viable applicant first have to overcome this just mountain of obstacles, uh, housing, getting IDs, uh, you know, if you, if you lost your driver's license, getting your driver's license uh, uh, back. Um, you apply for jobs electronically these days. If you did, never had experience with a personal computer, how do you get that experience? How do you create a viable resume? How do you deal with these issues? And it became very apparent to me, and, and the reason I wrote a chapter about reentry is because I think employers have to understand that someone who has overcome all these obstacles and is, is able to present themselves as a viable applicant for employment has already shown that they are a person of character and achievement because of the determination it takes to overcome these obstacles and all the new skills they had to learn uh, along the way. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to judge achievement in people. It's really easy if they have kind of a traditional, you know, went to some, you know, a, a school in a nice neighborhood, went to a private high school, went to an Ivy League school, then got a business degree, right? You can kind of see a clear track. But often what really is the mark of character is how you overcome adversity. And many returning citizens who have overcome those obstacles have proven that they are people of character and accomplishment. And it's just that the employers have to learn how to have to learn the enough about this process to understand how that can be true. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting is a lot of people take some of those smaller things for granted, like getting a driver's license, like getting a social security card. And, and what a lot of people don't know is no matter how much time you've done, and I'll just speak to California, whether you've done one year, whether you've done 25 years, you leave the prison gates with anywhere from 100 to $200. Right. Um, it's been, the gate money's been the same since 1973. So we've kind of been left out of inflation, people who've uh, been in the prison system. And you're given a bus ticket or you pay for a bus ticket out of your gate money to either Los Angeles County or one of the five or six counties in the Bay Area usually. And you're dropped off with a wave and, and see you later, bye. And then kind of you have to fend for yourself. So what happens is you arrive after doing all this time in prison, you have no resources. Many times you don't have a support system and you got 80 bucks in your pocket. And so I'm not for sure what we as a community and a society expect from that situation. Um, because as you mentioned, there's so many things that we, we take for granted in reference to ID. And I know that Ted, you yourself, who had a relatively soft landing, upon getting out, face some of those same challenges just with the basics of ID during COVID. Can you speak to that just a little bit, Ted? Yeah, it was, uh, A, you, when you get out, uh, you walk out of prison with a, a prison ID. And so DMVs were shut down. You know, there, that, that wasn't uh, an option in the first couple of weeks after my release. And trying to set up a bank account with a prison ID was, uh, for me, it was impossible. I was unable to do it. And if I if I did not have uh, the support of my family uh, and and just friends who who had walked through that process uh, prior to me, I would have been in, in a bad situation. I mean, I was blessed to come out into you know a turnkey life for the most part. Uh, you know, 
an apartment furnished, ready to go. Most people don't uh, have those opportunities in their first days out. And if I were to come out uh, without them, with a prison ID trying to survive in, you know, during COVID, um, you know, it, as, as much work as I had done on myself, uh, school, et cetera, to, you know, be prepared to succeed out here, it still would have been, uh, I would not have known where to start. So, uh, and the reality is that the people get out without those types, with the, without the type of support that I was uh, given um, every day. I mean, we have nearly 40,000 people a year paroling from California prisons, not to mention county jails, uh, who get out in those same, you know, facing the same obstacles without any support. So uh, it's, it's an uphill climb. And uh, I, I, I can't imagine that people, ex I don't, I can't imagine how people expect uh, people in that situation to, to succeed. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. And I think that that's why we have uh, the recidivism race that we do. So yeah. I think that takes us to our next uh, chapter, maybe some policy. Absolutely. Uh, this is something dear to my heart and something dear to Crop's heart. Uh, I want to talk about chapter seven of your book when you talk about policies for a second chance in a thriving economy. Very important issue that's left out of most of conversations is the role that policy plays. Can you talk a little bit about how local, state and federal policy play from both a second chance perspective for returning citizens and employers and, and what your perspective is on that? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I, I always uh, like to cite uh, Brian Hooks, who is the president of the Stand Together Foundation, and I, you know, I don't know if this is original to him, but the first time I heard it was from from his mouth. He said, you know, that this uh, it, it was always thought you were either soft on crime or tough on crime, and that's the wrong way to look at it. And I, I couldn't agree more. And so, you know, we have these policies that are kind of locked into this paradigm of. If you're not being tough on, you know, providing all sorts of restrictions, then you are going to increase crime, and it it really doesn't work that way. There, there's, um, we we have so many restrictions right now that burden people who have exited the uh, the prison system or who have a felony conviction, that we are actually undermining public safety because we're standing in the way of their ability to rehabilitate themselves through employment and being a contributing member of society. And uh, so so I, I don't do the soft on crime, tough on crime. We should all be in favor of, of public safety and the opportunity to rehabilitate. And that, um, you know, I, I don't cover the full range of, of reform because that's not my expertise. I really just right. focus in on where it's impacting employment. And it starts with pretrial detention. You know, someone who is innocent because you're innocent until proven guilty. I understand that some people are potentially such a threat to public safety that, that they should be, um, uh, or that there's a rationale for confinement. But all too often, uh, there are people who are just simply too poor to make bail and aren't a particular threat to public safety. And we end up leaving them incarcerated, pretrial incarceration in a jail, where you've just blown up their ability to work. Um, and you are, you know, ability to work, ability to parent. Um, there's a wonderful book that had a big influence on me, uh, Alexander Natapoff's uh, Punishment Without Crime, that really talks about how just the misdemeanor system 
undermines people's lives. So it ultimately ends up to, you know, they're getting um, uh, felony convictions. And then, of course, there's the reality that if you are um, unable to make bail and you're incarcerated, you're much more likely to take a plea deal just to go home and home off into your family and, and, and your, your spouse and children. And that often has people who are pleading guilty to something, crimes they didn't even commit or to um, punishments or, or, or a, a classification of their crime, what should be a minor misdemeanor. Instead, they take a, a, a deal to get a felony conviction, uh, but no prison time just to go home. And these become incredible burdens. So, you know, it starts before trial and then um, it, it's uh, uh, how we uh, treat people during incarceration and prison sentences and, and what are we doing to give people skills that, that actually will allow them to rehabilitate. And, you know, I know there are lots of certificates you can get. Uh, a, a, someone I met who spent time in a, in a uh, federal penitentiary said, yeah, I got a certificate for playing bridge, learning how to play bridge. You know? <laughs> um, how about an industry acknowledged credential for sure. welding, right? You know, those are things sure. that help with employment. And then of course, there's this whole post-incarceration or post-conviction, those collateral consequences, uh, you know, there are reasons we started with licensing restrictions, you know, but you can't be a barber in many states right. if you have a felony conviction. Now, if your crime was, you know, killing people with scissors, you know, maybe there's, you know, legitimate, but but it's unrelated to most of these things. And then, of course, uh, community supervision, parole can be way overly burdensome um, and get in the way of employment. So those are kind of the focuses for me is like, how how is the justice system getting in the way of people's ability to work and be contributing members of the society. And all too often, they, they, they get in the way in completely unreasonable um, ways that, that no thoughtful citizen would say, this is a good idea. Powerful points. And I know that Ted is going to uh, want to talk about the types of conversations that can move some of these policy discussions. But I want to just touch before he does on one point you made about collateral consequences. Because the collateral consequence system, if you will, that exists in this country kind of extends from old Europe and this notion of a civil death that occurs um, where you're like taken out of, put in exile of society forever uh, once you have a, a, a tax uh, crime or some other kind of infraction. And I'm wondering, should America, should the criminal justice system find a way to get away from this permanence of punishment, because in many ways, the collateral consequences are worse than the actual punishment themselves. So if a person goes to prison even for two years, which is, is serious enough, but the collateral consequences actually follow them for the rest of their life in many cases. And, and those things can can hamper you from being able to get an apartment or a house. I mean, one of our uh, leadership, a person from our leadership team here, Richard Morales, who hosts the Prison Post, he actually applied, even though he had a BA degree, even though he had a job, he applied when he got out to 20 different apartment complexes and got denied by every one of them because he was on parole and had a felony conviction. Um, so many of those challenges that occur, not only with employment, but for housing and for other different types of things. Is it time for us to get away and put some type of cap where a, a certain period of time after, maybe five years after you've been out or seven years, or how would you think about framing something like that from a policy perspective to legislators? I'm sorry, is that for Ted or for, for no, me? No, that's for you. Ted's going to talk about some conversation. I want to talk about the collateral consequences. The um, the issue with um, all this is completely legitimate. And I think that uh, 
Things like expungement are one way you can do this. I, I think the, the pardon system is completely underused. You know, should, uh, you know, governors should be stepping up and using uh, their power of pardon in many more cases. And there should be an organized, um, there should be an organized way to, to uh, apply for pardons. Um, and there should be, you know, it, if there are crimes or, or where you, you can associate it with a mental illness, uh, you know, people have told me, you know, arson is, is something that you worry about. Maybe there, you, you can say, well, it, it's hard to show that someone gets over some of these things, but even there, um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced. So yes, uh, what we should not, if we want to punish people for life, those should be sentenced. People, the people who have created, who have uh, done such egregious crimes or such uh, proven to be such threats to public safety, that they should be given life sentences. But if you're not going to give a life sentence, someone's not going to deserve a life sentence. And 95% of people who are incarcerated come out of incarceration. Then we should give them the chance to to succeed. And and that um, should include. Um, the opportunity for expungements or pardons and so that their past uh, that they you know done their time for paid their dues is is not a lifelong burden absolutely ted yeah i appreciate that uh, jeffrey and what i'm wondering is so you know crop we we work in uh advancing policy that we that we believe is going to be useful uh for reform but uh, what I'm curious about is from your perspective, what conversations, what policy should organizations like ours be advancing that is going to uh, improve uh, the, the, the odds of being of, of formerly incarcerated people being hired when they get out? Uh, is it incentivizing employers? You know, I'm just curious about your thoughts there. Yeah, you know, it, it has. Um... If an employer is looking just for an incentive, that's probably not a great policy. I, you know, I, I refer to different models of employee uh, employment of people with records, and this one I refer to as the disposable employee model, where all you're after is someone dirt cheap and capitalizing on tax credits. You know, that's not really a great model because they don't invest in people and it's not selective and they have mixed outcomes. Um, that being said, you know, tax credits and things like that really do help with some of the training costs or providing some of the supplemental accommodations um, that, that help people thrive. So I'm not against that. But what what um, kinds of reforms that I think are important are, A, if you can get expungement rules, um, you know, that's helpful, but that tends not to help people who write out of prison, right? Usually expungement requires a time period. So that, that's not the most critical uh, point in time. But I think um, policies that provide people with identification and preparation uh, prior to exiting prisons are really helpful because you, you get people kind of situated much more quickly. And, and the faster you can get someone engaged in a new life, the, the better off you are. Um, I, I think it's also very important to recognize the role that fear of negligent hiring liability plays in deterring employers. And that's a big one that I, I think sometimes is overlooked by the reform community. Because if you were to look at the statistics, you would say, well, gee, Employers are hardly ever sued for negligent hiring liability uh, on the basis of a, of a criminal uh, record, but that doesn't tell the whole picture. Uh, from my perspective, you know, I always counter with, I have fire insurance on my house. Homes hardly ever burn down, but if 
my home were to burn down is pretty catastrophic and I need protection. That's how employers think about negligent hiring. So protections and some states have done a particularly good job. Texas, you know, has been a leader in this, providing more protections for employers so that um, if, they've, if they've shown that they had a process for examining records um, and hire someone after doing their due diligence, they have little to fear from negligent hiring liability. Or, or in the case of, of some of the Texas legislation, there's no liability for certain nonviolent uh, people who have been convicted of certain nonviolent crimes. You know, so I think the um, that's a really important area to look at is um, taking that negligent hiring uh, liability fear off the table, whether it's real or not. Why would we even want that to be a discussion point? Awesome. Great, great, great insights there, Jeffrey. You're dropping a lot of jewels today for our audience. We really appreciate that. Uh, you know, Ted and I, you know, we met and, and we really connected on visionary and entrepreneurial type of thinking. And so I'm really excited to talk a, a little bit about chapter eight. We don't want to give away the whole book because it's like a good movie. And we want people to go out and buy that on Amazon.com or you can go to Crop's website at croporganization.org and buy the book. Um, but the Second Chance Society. Right. I, I thought that was a very interesting chapter. I, I really found myself when I was reading it, buying into the vision of what that may look like. What I want to hear from you a little bit about what that looks like in as far as your vision and, and what are some possibilities that exist for really forming something like this? We've become a very unforgiving society and a very stratified society where, you know, there's an element of people who are very often, you know, business leaders, business owners the individuals who can impact change in business, and they have zero interaction with people who've lived lives different from, from theirs. And that's unhealthy because they don't always understand the challenges that people face and how easy it is for a particularly young person to make a bad decision that leads to justice involvement because of the environment that comes from. So, you know, that's kind of part of it is stratification. And then we just have this culture that in, ha, has overly demonized uh, people who have committed crimes. And, and again, you know, some, some of these people I'm, I'm willing to concede might be really bad people, but I don't think the majority are. And um, certainly, I think all of us believe at some level in uh, redemption and people's ability to turn their lives around. And yet we don't um, look at people of records as normal ever again in, in many ways. And so I, I talk in, the, in this particular chapter about what would it take for us to change this societal view? And I think that it's often the arts community which sets arts and entertainment community, which sets this this standard. And uh, there's all sorts of neat projects going on. There's one that just came to my attention. Um, there is going to be a play about re-entry on Broadway in September. This is, uh, it's Clyde's is the name of, uh, of the of the uh, play. Lynn Nottage, who, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, playwright who, who did Sweat, uh, which is a spectacular uh, play. I had the good fortune to see. You know, the, this is what we need more of. Um, entertainment, popular culture that doesn't, you know, glamorize glam gangster life or anything like that, that doesn't, um, that doesn't overly, you know, gloss over the realities, but where someone can be, you know, a character in a show who part of their life story is, oh yeah, you know, when I was young, I made some mistakes, I was in prison and that's just who I was, uh, you know, that's just part of my life story, but now I'm a normal character or helps people understand, um, 
the burdens that people face coming out of prison. So I cite a couple of, uh, I, I'm kind of a theater person. I've always been interested in that. I'm fortunate to serve on some theater boards. You know, there's some neat plays that have been out there. Uh, there there's uh, some neat movies that have been out there. I think we need more of that. So it, it helps humanize the person with a criminal record. And that's the starting point. Sure. Awesome. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, you know, Jeffrey, we really want to thank you for being with us today and sharing in this discussion about uh, your book, Untapped Talent, and about this uh, very important issue to all of us. Would you be willing to come back and spend some more time with us in the future? Absolutely. And uh, hopefully one of these days we can do it in person as well. Absolutely. We're looking forward to that. For, for, for all our listeners, um, please order a copy of Jeffrey's book, Untapped Talent, How Untapped Talent Works for Your Business and the Community. It's available on our website at www.croporganization.org or at amazon.com. We'll be talking to CDCR soon, I think next week, Jeffrey, about trying to get a, a wholesale thing of your book so everybody within the prison system in California has access to this very important information. And tell us before we sign off, Jeffrey, if folks want to reach out to you specifically or learn more about you directly, where can they find you? Um, I have a website, jeffkorzenik.com. Uh, if you if you can spell Korzenik, I'm the only Jeff Korzenik on the planet. So uh, <laughs> J-E-F-F-K-O-R-Z-E-N-I-K. And uh, there is a contact sheet for people to get in uh, touch with me, but you'll see background, you'll see work about the books, links to some of the public presentations I've done over the years. And uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a real starting point uh, for people. So um, I appreciate it. Anyone who shows that interest, I'm also going to add: if if people do get the book, please do put a review up on Amazon. That that's a very important driver of uh, of visibility on uh, Amazon's website. And so, if you believe in the cause, I'm not asking for five star reviews. I'll stand my my work if you like it or don't like it. But please put a review up there, uh, so it it will help drive visibility for this cause. We appreciate that, Jeffrey. School teachers, advocates, students, people in prison, people who work in prison, people who are interested in how to uh, increase their business and find a talent pool that's worthy of hiring. Please, again, go out and get Jeffrey's book. Jeffrey, we appreciate you, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Ken Oliver for Ted Gray and Jeffrey Korzenik. We look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.